0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, um, I don't know what it is that you do in your free time for fun. For me, one of the things I've been doing in my free time just for fun lately is listening to a lot of sermons, which I know you're thinking, Sean, slow down, that's... That's way too exciting. But you know, it's just one of the things that I do. Uh, Lots of pastors and speakers contact me and they want feedback. And so um, many of them are pretty young. And so I will listen to them. And while you may not do it for fun, I actually get paid to listen to sermons, which you're thinking, I wish I could cash in on that deal right now, but tough. You got up here and came of your own free will. And so, what happens every fall is there is actually a national competition for 17 to 25 year olds called the Next Generation Preacher Search. So, just think of like America's Next Top Model. (laughs) Right, with just preachers. And they're all like, you have to be in high school or college and I, they've asked me several times to listen to like the first round. And so it's 17 to 25 year olds somewhere in there and they videotape these sermons in their bedrooms, in their rooms, some do it at their local churches. And then I want, they ask me to give them feedback and they always say, just give them some positive, constructive feedback. I don't know if you've heard many 17 year olds preach you can give constructive feedback. <laughs> there is no positive feedback. I mean, most of them, like they're, they're just like copying somebody that they heard, which is fine. And so I sit and I listen to all of these because the reality is like preaching, really is kind of like learning to ride a bike in public. Like you're going to fall a lot, you're going to spill a lot. But the only way that a sermon is a sermon is it's got to be done in public. That's part of the art form. And so they asked me to do this because I'm one of those few people who actually studied preaching in college, like, you know, went through, uh, and in graduate school, like that's what I studied in graduate school. And I can give them positive feedback. The reality is though, for whoever it is, no matter how old, where they come from, It takes a long time to be, it's like golf. It takes a long time to be very average. (laughs) And so like, it's one of those things where like, most people never get to where they wanna be, but it takes a long time to like just, man, like you just shot in the 90s and that's great. So, and no one's immune. Because the rule of thumb is, for anybody, your first 200 sermons are just going to suck. Like they just stink. And it doesn't matter who you are. We just say you're an amateur until you preach 200. So even if you were doing every week, it would take you a couple of years to get that many just under your belt. And I found this out like everybody else finds it out. Like when I first started needing to preach, having to preach every weekend, my family was living in California and I was finishing up graduate school And I wrote and delivered the kind of sermons that I loved, which is the kind that they taught me in school, which are like highly structured, very nuanced, lots of care to the language and theology. Like in, in my book, Speaking by the Numbers, I call it artisanal sermons. Like it's sermons that I wrote for my professors. Like, these are the kind of sermons that my professors would like, and my other friends who are also sermon nerds who we buy books of sermons and read together and talk about how great that was, or there's, you know, there's this event every year called the Festival of Homiletics. For real, this is the thing. <laughs> Where folks just go, and like, for three days, people just preach. And, like, folks like me sit and just soak it up. And you're thinking, that's what I want to do on my next vacation. I'll give you, a, I'll give you the link for the registration. You'd love it. <laughs> but those were the kind of sermons that I was doing. And I thought it was great, except there was one problem. All the people that I was talking to, none of them understood anything that I was saying. And I got all of this feedback that… There were words that I used that were just like common words to me, words I use all the time, that they didn't know what those meant. And the messages were like too smart for people. And I, I thought when I heard that people thought my sermons were too smart, my response was like, well, get smarter. Like, I'm not, <laughs> like, how am I supposed to help you not being very smart? Like, I went to public school. If I was able to pull it together, come on, you know? And then I had this one interaction with one of our community members. And she said something. It got very heated. And what she said actually revealed much more about her than it did about me. And she said, I shouldn't have to think when I come to church. And she really did say a lot because in some of the churches where I was raised, and maybe it's true for some of you too, the message was that when it came to the life of faith, like you really shouldn't have to think about it at all. Or maybe even worse, like the thinking's already been done. And so you don't have to think about anything, you just accept, you receive the conclusions and answers that other people have already come up with. There's something about like when you get out of your car in the parking lot, they just leave your brain outside and you come and do all of the stuff, right? And you say the prayers and you sing the songs and if it becomes too thick, too thick, too thorny intellectually, like we just don't think about it. And this has actually become a significant problem. Because several years ago, a church historian named Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And you know what he says in The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind? It starts very simply. It says, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. And the book goes on, you know, Christians in America are very active when it comes to political advocacy, and we're very active when it comes to service, very active when it comes to worship, but you know where we're not very active? And thinking about actually building coherent models of thinking. And what he was getting after is all of these institutions that have served people for years, places like Oxford and Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Like all of those were begun by Christians for Christians to cultivate the life of the mind. And now you can just hear in casual conversation the dismissal of the mind. Like you've heard people say, well, that's just, that's just academic stuff or that's the elites. Have you heard people talk in ways that made you think like, well, we really shouldn't pay any attention to what's like book knowledge. Like I've even heard pastors tell the joke in their church. Well, I went to cemetery. I mean, seminary. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. It's like. Are they comforted by the fact that you are uninformed? Is that it, like that you don't know anything? That you're not even trying to know anything, to learn anything, to grow? And his point was that a lot of the abuses that you and I have seen in the church, when we watch and follow along with church leaders who have led their churches in the rise and fall of horrible things are often communities where people say, don't think, just listen to me. Just listen to a few of us. The thinking's already been done. And there's this idea that the life of the mind is somehow opposed to life with God. And both people inside local churches and outside local churches are more than happy to say that Jesus is divine. What we struggle with saying is whether or not we believe Jesus is smart. Does Jesus actually know better than I know, than you know? that Jesus is Savior, is the kind of thing that we wrap our arms around. But Jesus, as an intellectual, is something many of us have never considered. And so, Ecclesia, if you've been around the last several weeks, you know that we have been in a series about the body, a theology of the body. And so we talked about the idea that your body is made in the image of God, and it is good. And we've talked about trauma and disability. We've talked about sexuality. We also need to talk about the part of your body that sends signals to the rest of your body, your mind, because if Your body is where where your will is enacted in the world. Then what is it that forms your will? How do you get a will in the first place? Where does it come from? When your will is shaped by the life of your mind. And one of the reasons we know this is because when Jesus shows up on the scene, when he begins his ministry, he begins saying and doing something that many of us just skip over. This is how Mark tells the story in Mark 1. He says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tested by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news. Jesus is proclaiming the good news, so what would that be? Proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, repent, and the the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So at the very beginning, just right out of the gate, when Jesus is first starting his ministry, after God has claimed him as God's son, Jesus says, repent. Now, if you are like me and grew up in churches, when you hear the word repent, this might be what you're thinking. You did some really bad stuff that you should feel even worse about and you should go and tell somebody about all the really bad stuff that you should feel really bad about, and that is called repentance and promise to never, 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 never do that again. Now, let me tell you, that's not a bad idea. There's a lot there that's really helpful. But that's not quite what Jesus means by repent. Because when Jesus says repent, what he means is a change of or transformation of the mind. So you've been living one way, and now the first thing to step into the life that God has called you to, which is what Jesus refers to as the kingdom of God, the place where God's will is done, where God is on the throne. change your mind because you've been living, Jesus would say, as if God's kingdom is not near, that you are not inside of God's kingdom. And so repent. What repentance means is to align your mind with reality the reality of the things that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is God's son, that the kingdom of God is near, the time is fulfilled, now repent. Change your mind. Because you know what it's like already to be around people whose minds aren't aligned with reality. You know this because you're dreading them coming over for Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Because every one of us has that uncle or that cousin, that friend, that person who for some reason married into your family and they are not aligned with reality. Their politics don't make any sense, evidence doesn't matter, facts don't matter, reality doesn't matter to them, they have chosen. To believe whatever they want to believe, and it doesn't matter what anybody says, that's what they're going to believe. And their minds are not in line with reality. And Jesus says, a mind that is not in line with reality, the unrepentant mind, that's a stubborn mind that dismisses the reality. And Jesus is saying that we are entering into a different reality. Repentance is a transformed and transforming of your mind. And this is actually one of the reasons that you and I should take our mental health seriously. So I've mentioned before, for a dozen years, I was in student ministry. And every year we would take our kids to this camp, our high school kids, and there were a bunch of kids from different churches and we'd mix them all up and we'd place them in these groups of about 15 or 17 kids. And leaders like me, you got this group of 15 or 17 and you just spent a lot of time, like eight plus hours every day with that same group of kids. And so even if you don't know each other very well when you start on Sunday night, by the time you get to Friday, you know each other pretty well. And at this camp, we had a four-year rotation of curriculum. So if you came all four years, you're in high school. You got all four years of the curriculum. And one of those years was about body and body image, a simple idea that you were created in God's image. And one year in particular, as we went around late in the week of all of the students in our group, every single one of the girls in that group confess to having struggled with or currently struggling with an eating disorder. And so, as we're walking through this, I simply ask, where did you get the idea that your body was somehow broken or undesirable and everyone from mom and dad, that's how they got it in their minds. And their bodies, in their bodies, were enacting what they believed in their mind. Your body isn't just out in the world doing stuff. It's doing what your mind is telling it to do, what your mind has nurtured it to do. And you will misuse your body. You will misuse other people's body if your mind is not aligned with reality. I love the way that Alistair McGrath, who wrote this great book called The Passionate Intellect, the way he talks about this, he says, God's existence may not be proved in the hard rationalist sense of the word, yet it can be affirmed with complete sincerity that belief in God is eminently reasonable and makes more sense of what we see in the world, discern in history, and experience in our lives than its alternatives." And what he's saying is what we see in the world, what we discern through history, what we experience, these are the things, this is how we know what reality is. And when we're off track with reality, we make really bad decisions and our bodies do things that they should not do or should not attempt to do because our minds are not aligned with reality. So think about this. Most of you, most of us, if we wanted to, could run a marathon. Most of us could not run a marathon tomorrow. (laughs) If your mind is aligned with reality, it might say something like this. I need to get new running shoes. I need to start running. I might find a running group. At some point I'm gonna need to register for a race. I'm gonna have to train. But if your mind is not aligned with reality, you might try to go out and run a marathon tomorrow, and your body will punish you for it. When your mind is not aligned with reality, that's when you wake up six months, a year, three years, five years later, and you say to yourself, oh my goodness. What was I thinking? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that I thought that. Because a mind that's not aligned with reality might think that someone who wants to use you is in love with you. It might make you think that people who you think support you, and it turns out they don't, are there to harm you. A mind not aligned with reality would look at your budget and spend more than you have. A mind that's not aligned with reality takes your feet into situations that harm your body. And we don't like to talk about that, because it's often uncomfortable. But the reality is that many of us bear the scars of things in our body because of what we decided with our mind. And it works the other way too your body cannot experience a significant trauma without it affecting your mind. You cannot divorce the two. This is the way that the Apostle Paul talks about it. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God." Your mind and your body are not two separate entities out in the world. That your will, the way you act in the world, is because you thought your way there. And we might not like this, but the reality of life is that you have been a part of very few accidents and thinking got you there. And so where would you start if you wanted to begin to nurture the life of the mind? I got a few suggestions. None of these are divine. There's something I came up with. I think they're helpful. I talk to a lot of people. And I think there are some good handles for us to get started. First is commit to become a learner and not a knower. What would it look like if you decided right now, my goal in life is to learn things, not to know things? Because guess what happens when we know things? Like we have to build up walls around all the stuff that we think that we know, and those walls have to be defended. And so anyone that comes along and pushes back or doesn't believe what we believe or say what we say or doesn't even say it like we think they ought to say it, those people become an enemy. But what if you just committed to learning? And that means that when you've come to a position on a particular issue or around a certain thought, how about engaging with the best arguments of the other side, not the easiest to defend? Or reading books and seeking out resources that argue the other side of what you think you believe. When you're a learner and not a knower, you free yourself from feeling like you always have to be right about everything. You can be much less defensive in the world, you can find yourself saying to other people, this is what I think, but I could be wrong. What if you said, I'm going to be the kind of person that I'm going to argue like I'm right, but I'm going to listen like I'm wrong. That way, parents, it's not the end of the world if your kids win an argument. There are folks who've got kids 40, 50, 60 years old, and they can just never let their kids win an argument. Partners, your partner could be right about something. And instead of just fighting about that for the next two months, just say, you're probably right, (coughs) probably. This is a different way of being in the world when you determine to be a learner rather than a knower. Another helpful tool might be to discover how the Bible actually works. Most people, most Christians in America have what we call a flat reading of the Bible, which means that everything is just as important as everything else, they don't really know how how literature works, why this story works this way and this other one works this way. This is a command that we follow and this is one that we don't. This is why we have discipleship groups on Sunday nights um, that I've been teaching called the Bible for Beginners, Just, just for people to understand how the Bible functions in the world. Because if you don't understand, you will inevitably find yourself in a conversation with someone over a theological or biblical topic and like me, you will say something really stupid. If you know how it works, and you fund your own learning, is so one of the things that happens in the Christian world all of the time. Is people get on social media and they argue about something in the Bible, and they'll come and ask me, "Oh, what do you think about this?" This person says this. This person says that. Why is there so much tension? And I always, you know, like people who actually like know the Bible, like who have been to school, like who work in scholarship. Do you know? Like, we don't actually fight that way because we know how it works when we take each other's views and opinions seriously, less defensive about all of that. And third, I think this is crucial, is to put life in the right buckets. There are three things driving you all the time. There are thinking, feeling, and doing And you will find yourself in pretty dire circumstances if you let your thinking do your feeling. Or if you let your feeling do your thinking. Or if you go out and do your thinking and then you do all of your doing without asking what you feel. Or you do your doing without thinking about what you're thinking. If you make all of your decisions in this one bucket, well, this is how I feel. This is how we feel. You're bound to go astray, but you are equally in danger by making all of your decisions in every other bucket too, because you will wake up one day having done a lifetime of living only thinking, 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 and be so out of touch with how you actually feel, and you will burn out you haven't taken your body seriously you got to put life in the right buckets as you're moving through. Is this something I feel? Or is this something I think? And can I, can I move forward with just feeling? Or should I think about this some more? It's okay to take your time to make a decision. Like, it's not the NFL draft. You're not on the clock. Not always. Put life in the right buckets. And then last, act as if what you believe is true. Because here's what happens. Because 25 years, I've served in a local church. I sit on the consequence side of the table. When people send me an email, wanna have coffee, this is a conversation about consequences. And they will say, well, I thought and we thought and we did, and it didn't turn out because I wasn't aligned with reality. It's like, I don't know why I did that. I don't believe that, and I was what to say, yes, you do, or you wouldn't have done it. What would life look like if you acted like what you believed was true? This is the way that Dallas Willard talks about it. He says, we don't believe something merely by saying we believe it or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. And this is the message of Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near to you. The rule and the reign of God, that Jesus is God's son. And to cultivate the life of the mind is simply to behave as if that is reality. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.EcclesiaHouston.org.